announced an additional $800 million in assistance to Ukraine. Today, I'm announcing another $800 million to further augment Ukraine's ability to fight in the east and the Donbass region. Plus, what does Russian President Vladimir Putin's recent actions say about Moscow's war? Putin failed with his big war aim of taking Kiev and deposing the government of Ukraine and putting in a puppet government. And that, that goes to the, the valor of Ukrainian troops. And later in the program, how Turkey's stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine is affecting its U.S. relations. Today is Thursday, April 21st. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine.
That comes on the same day that Russian President Vladimir Putin declared victory in Mariupol, saying that the city had been liberated and ordered troops not to storm the Azovstal industrial plant. Ukraine says the city is not under complete control of Russian forces. And Shirakova, share with me how the Ukrainian government responded to the news. Yeah, it's important to understand that um, Mariupol is still not uh, under Russian control completely. So uh, there are still uh, around 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers who are located uh, at Azov South Lab. And uh, they're controlling the plant. Um, just recently, uh, we had um, the briefing of the advisor to the head of the president's office, uh, Mr. Arostovich, uh, who commented on the situation. Uh, basically, uh, there are two main points that he highlighted regarding why uh, Russian president decided to do so. Uh, first reason is that uh, probably um, Russian forces realized that it would be uh, very, very difficult to fight uh, in that area and they would probably lose a lot of people. Apparently, they decided that it is more important to move these forces to the northeast part to join other forces, so to be stronger in that flank. Anna, I was wondering if you could put some context into what we know about the Ukrainians who are still in the plant. They've been cut off from uh, resupply for some time now. What's known about what conditions they are currently in? Condition is catastrophic. It's very, very difficult. Um, and uh, for the past week, um, Ukrainian government is trying to get humanitarian corridor and green corridor, in particular for Azov Southland, uh, for uh, military uh, and for uh, civilians who are located there, especially for those military uh, soldiers who are injured and staying in the plant, at the plant. Um, what we know that there are around 2,000, maybe a, a bit more uh, soldiers of the Ukrainian forces. Uh, some of them injured, some of them uh, continue to fight. And today uh, we had also uh, kind of a list of the military uh, equipment that was destroyed by Ukrainian forces uh, from uh, Russian military equipment that was destroyed. So they're still fighting, they're active. But uh, of course, they don't have enough supplies. Um, at some point, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had information that it was uh, kind of, um, uh, so basically they got something. Uh, apparently, it was uh, a secret operation uh, that took place. But again, uh, it's not obviously it's not enough. And of course, um, they need uh, they need to be uh, to be evacuated. Um, but uh, they're not going to surrender. We talk about civilians. Uh, at the plant, there are more than 1,000 people uh, sheltering, and in general, there are around uh, 100,000 people, civilians, who remain in Mariupol. Anna Chernikova is reporting for us from Kiev, Ukraine. Anna, thank you. Thank you. Russia also test-launched a nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missile that Putin said on Wednesday would make Moscow's enemies stop and think. I asked Ambassador John Herbst, Senior Director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, as well as the former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, the significance of Putin's actions. First, I agree with the administration's reaction to this. We should yawn, because in fact, they, the Russians followed all the rules that have been established for regarding such tests, and they often don't follow the rules. But it is true the administration has been um, dangerously cautious um, and timid, not just cautious, but timid, 
in its response to Putin's nuclear threats. Uh, the administration has publicly said it has not taken several measures, most almost all of which it should have taken, to de help defend Ukraine against Moscow's aggression because they were afraid of, quote unquote, provoking Putin. And they've talked about the dangers of nuclear war. And they're certainly right about the dangers of nuclear war. But to say, for example, well, we can't send MiGs to Ukraine because Putin might consider it provocative and, you know, he has nuclear weapons, is basically having Putin deter us with his nuclear arsenal. That is not a good posture to defend the interests of the United States. And it is not consistent with the sound foreign policy of our history. If Jack Kennedy had taken a similar approach, both in the Berlin crisis in 61 and the missile crisis in Cuba in 62, we'd probably still have Soviet missiles in Cuba. Uh, so the administration has let itself be deterred by Moscow's nuclear threats, but they handled this particular incident the right way. And Ambassador, I also want to get your take on this. Putin today said that his forces in Mariupol should not focus on trying to take the industrial plant where the Ukraine Ukrainian military are holed up. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're refocusing their efforts in the Donbass after failing to take major cities in the initial days of the war. So how do you assess, you know, further Russia's military military operations in Ukraine today and, and moving forward. Look, Putin's ambitions cut to the core of American interests against American interests. As I mentioned, his designs extend to our Baltic allies and our Eastern European allies, whom we are pledged to defend with the 82nd Airborne, you know, with American lives. So we have a great interest in making sure Putin goes kaput in Ukraine. And that's why we, we were sending these weapons. And we need to understand we're not doing the Ukrainians a favor. It obviously helps them. We're doing ourselves a favor because they're the ones who are fighting and dying. We're not. Uh, Putin failed with his big war aim of taking Kiev and deposing the government of Ukraine and putting in a puppet government. And that, that goes to the, the valor of Ukrainian troops. Um, so... Putin's underlings, never Putin himself, are now saying, well, our real aims are in the east of Ukraine. Right? That's a face-saving measure because they failed in their big aims. Now they're trying to have a clear win in Ukraine's east. They have made some progress over the last week or so, but very limited. They haven't even taken Mariupol which has been almost under, has been under siege now since February 24 and was under a partial siege the previous seven years. But Putin, this demonstrates those who are always worried about Putin's off-ramp. Putin can create his own off-ramp in a nanosecond. So he needs a trophy for May 9, we hear about, right? The victory day of World War II. Well, he's already declared that trophy. He says, we've taken Mariupol. But of course, they haven't taken Mariupol. Now, Putin, I think, has made the smart decision not to send his troops in to get killed trying to take it. He'd probably lose several thousand Russian troops. So he's just essentially ignoring the fact that they're there and saying, oh, we've already gotten control of Mariupol. So he can, he can make his own reality because he controls the media in Russia. Ambassador John Herbst is the senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, as well as the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Ambassador? Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Turkey has condemned Russia's aggression in Ukraine since the start of the invasion back in February. Ankara's robust stance against Moscow is becoming an impetus to improve relations with its NATO ally, the United States. 
Turkish-U.S. ties have been strained over Turkey's past close relations with Russia. And Dorian Jones continues our coverage. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has unequivocally condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At the same time, Turkey has sold, in the face of Moscow's criticism, Turkish-made drones that continue to take a deadly toll on Russian forces. Ankara also closed access to the Black Sea to most Russian warships, all moves praised by Washington. Asla Aydin-Tashbash, a senior fellow of the European Council, says Turkey's stance offers an opportunity for a reset in U.S.-Turkish relations. Well, it certainly introduced a level of stability and engagement that wasn't there before the Ukrainian war. The Biden administration's policy seemed to be social distancing, somewhat of a cold shouldering of Erdogan based on Turkey's authoritarian lurch and also because there were so many outstanding issues in the bilateral relationship. Senior American diplomats have made several visits to Turkey since the start of the Ukrainian conflict with a framework announced last month to enhance ties. Relations between the NATO allies have been deeply strained, in particular over Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's close relationship with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. Ankara's purchase of Russian S-400 missiles triggered American sanctions, barring Turkey from purchasing warplanes. Ankara is seeking an easing of the sanctions to purchase American F-16 fighter jets, says Aydin Tashbash. Turkish officials that I've spoken to feel you need to give us something to continue the bilateral cooperation. So F-16 meets that purpose. A Turkish Air Force is already run with F-16s. There's plenty. But over the past few years, because of existing sanctions, they've not been able to maintain or find spare parts and replenish their fleet. I think F-16 is a good formula for both sides. And they say Ankara is increasingly concerned over its aging jet fighters, given that its neighbor and rival Greece is currently engaged in renewing its defense forces. Erdogan has raised the fighter jet purchase in conversations with U.S. President Joe Biden. But Aaron Stein, director of research at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, a research organization in the U.S., warns that defense sales face a serious obstacle. In terms of congressional support for arms sales to Turkey, there's still cause for pessimism. Key members on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Menendez and Risch, have both been on the record very recently saying that unless Turkey transfers out the S-400, things like an F-16 sale will be unlikely, if not impossible. Now, things could change. The Biden administration could put considerable pressure on these two senators, but we'll see. Erdogan is ruling out any removal of Russian S-400 missiles. Resolving the impasse is expected to top Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Çavuşoğlu's agenda when he visits Washington next month for talks with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Doreen Jones, VOA News, Istanbul. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Steve Miller. Hundreds of Ethiopians lined upside the Russian embassy in Addis Ababa this week in hopes of being recruited to fight for Moscow in its invasion of Ukraine. The embassy has dismissed claims it is recruiting foreign fighters and says the Ethiopians are there to show solidarity with Russia. Gallo Dwight 
is up next. For the past several days, Ethiopians have stood in long lines outside the Russian embassy in the capital. Their hope is to be accepted by Russia to take part in its invasion of Ukraine. Witnesses say the embassy is not bringing hopefuls inside, but say staffers have come outside to take documents. Feleka Gebrakidan is among the Ethiopians who have spent long hours waiting outside the embassy. He has military experience. He says having served in the Ethiopian military for over a decade. He says, we are former members of the Ethiopian army. We do not have a job at the moment. We have heard that the Russian embassy is now recruiting, and we are here with our credentials. I have brought the clearance I got after serving in the military. Peleke says he has been at the gate of the embassy for three days, but has not managed to get inside. He says he plans to come back and try again. Tedros Simeon lives next to the Russian embassy in Addis. He says he is not happy to see his fellow citizens volunteering for the war. Why would I fight on behalf of foreign nations? I was so angry when people pulled in for registration to the embassy. Money did not show up when the Ethiopian Ministry of Defense was calling to join our army. They are now going for Russians and I'm sad about it. We should prioritize the peace of our country. Some of the volunteers are motivated by economics. They are desperate to get a job, even a potentially daily job overseas because they are unemployed. Also, most Ethiopians see Russia as a friendly nation politically. In 1980s, Ethiopia was under communist leadership and there are thousands of Ethiopian military personnel who were trained in the Soviet Union. Maria Chernokina is the press attache for the Russian embassy in Addis Ababa. Speaking to BOA, she acknowledged that some in line are carrying documents but said that reflects their own willingness and hope. She says the Russian embassy is not recruiting people for any purpose and that would not comply with its responsibility as a diplomatic mission. Since the war began, she adds, Ethiopians have been calling and emailing the embassy to voice their solidarity with Russia. Chernokina says the line outside the embassy is also part of that. Contacted by VOA, the Ukrainian embassy in Addis Ababa declined to say anything about the lines. The Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs did not respond to a request for a comment. Galmodite for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. About 6,000 Ukrainians have been granted humanitarian visas in Australia. The visas will allow the Ukrainian refugees to work and study for up to three years. Phil Mercer has that story. For Inna Ilyenko and her eight-year-old son Andre, fleeing their home in the Ukrainian capital Kiev was the start of a tortuous journey to safety in Australia. To cross the border Slovakia, then from Slovakia to Poland, and from Poland to Austria, and from Austria to Australia. In Australia, I feel very safe, very safe. Andrew Mensinski from the Ukrainian Council of New South Wales is helping to resettle those displaced by the war in Europe. These are stories that we all heard from our grandparents fleeing the Red Army in 1945. And to be honest, you know, they were childhood stories for us. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe that you lived through that. And now hearing about people going through that again, it's heartbreaking. It's unbelievable. But Australia's decision to grant humanitarian visas to Ukrainians has been criticised by campaigners who say it ignores the plight of other asylum seekers. The government rejects that claim, insisting its policies give priority to the most vulnerable. But Ian Rintoul from the Refugee Action Coalition isn't convinced. 
It's very, very opportune for the government to respond to the plight of the Ukrainians, but it's a very, very selective compassion. The wars that Europe has been involved in, the wars that Australia has been involved in, that has created the refugees from Iraq, from the Middle East, from the situation in Africa, there's a very different attitude to them. We've got Fortress Australia. The fences are up for the vast majority of people who desperately need help. The government in Canberra says it will welcome more refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine and has imposed sweeping sanctions on Russia. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison has denounced Russia's brutal, illegal and unjustified invasion of Ukraine. His government has sent missiles and armoured personnel carriers as well as humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Phil Mercer for VOA News. Sydney. As Russia doubles down on its war in Ukraine, the country's humanitarian needs are growing exponentially. Trouble is, U.S. charities are seeing an overall slowdown in donations at the same time. VOA's Veronica Baldros Iglesias looks at how these nonprofits and their volunteers are adapting. Volunteering is a priority for Vladislav Shpakov, who immigrated from Kiev in 2016. As the co-owner of a residential moving company, Shpakov spends around $400 a trip transporting donated goods from Virginia to Delaware. Their ultimate destination, his home country, Ukraine. We're losing some money because we still need to pay for the gas uh, and, you know, we have employees. But we are Ukrainian and we need to do something, you know, to try to help. It takes helping hands, cash and in-kind donations for U.S.-based charities to reach Ukrainians in need. And Russia's intensified attacks makes matters worse. Drags on, donor interest is slowing, while humanitarian needs climb. Charities are rethinking their strategies. Maria Zoroka is the co-founder of Razum for Ukraine. There are quite many warehouses all throughout the United States, and I think people now are realizing that they need to focus on what they are accepting and in what capacity. We are focusing on tactical medicine. Unless donated goods are worth more than shipping costs. Some charities aren't bothering to send them overseas. Donations are used to help the local economy too when possible, says the founder of U.S.-based World Central Kitchen, Chef Jose Andres. His team mobilizes restaurant workers to serve up fresh meals to Ukrainians. If we import all the food, we'll make the farmers even poorer. The idea is to act and to buy locally. The European Union has allocated 143 million euros for people affected by the war. In March, the Biden administration announced an additional $1 billion for humanitarian assistance in Ukraine. Nova Ukraine's director, Igor Markov, says more could be done. There are different uh, ways to spend the money, and if you try to cover them all, this is not going to be enough. Um, for refugees, the best thing to do is to supply large amounts of food or medicine. When it comes to individual donors, the nonprofit Global Giving says there's a certain slowdown of support. This is turning into one of the fastest growing refugee crisis, and there's a lot of concern for what does it look like in the longer run for us to be able to continue to support refugees. Boris Levonenko, who was born in Kharkiv, remains optimistic that altruism will prevail. 
gathering medical supplies for his former countrymen makes him feel better, even if he loses some business at his auto repair shop. I have to be at the shop and run the business. Unfortunately, I can't do it. We can make money later after we win. Veronica Valderas Iglesias for VOA News, Arlington, Virginia. And that's going to do it for us today. Be sure to stay up with the latest developments on Ukraine on our website at voanews.com. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Steve Miller. Be well, be safe, and good night.